And so this morning, we're going to be in Matthew 11. So if you want to turn there, you can. And I want you to use, turn on that imagination uh, thing in your brain for a second. And imagine if you had two different bosses. Um, the first kind of, both boss you, uh, you report to. So the first boss is, is harsh, is emotionally disconnected, is reactionary, is you just don't know what you're going to get when you show up to him or her. Like that's the feeling when you show up to boss A. And then boss B, the other boss, is someone who's understanding, someone who's compassionate, thoughtful, maybe goes the extra mile for you. So you're going to feel very different when you go to boss A versus going to boss B. When you have that you know, year-end kind of 360 of, of who you are and what you're doing in your company, you're, that meeting with boss A is going to be very anxiety-provoking, stressful. Boss B is going to be very different. How you approach them is going to look very differently. See, who they are affects how you approach them. And in the same way, um, same can be true about how we approach God. Uh, until we understand the heart of Jesus, we will naturally see him as harsh or frustrated with us, and we'll struggle to approach him uh, in our life. We'll struggle to approach him when, when difficulty comes, when hardship comes, uh, especially have a hard time approaching him when it comes to spiritual disciplines and practices. So how we view Jesus, if we're honest, is, is partially shaped by that tape recorder message that we hear in our mind over and over again, that you need to be perfect to be loved. You need to achieve to be loved. You need to be creative enough to be loved. You need to know enough to be loved. The list goes on and on and on. We have this tape recorder message, and we bring that into our relationship with God. But it's not the case. In Matthew 11, we learn a side of Jesus that Nick began talking about last week that honestly is jaw-dropping. And that redefines how we approach God. Like our bosses, who Jesus is affects how we approach him. So again, Nick referenced this book last week, Gentle and Lowly, by a guy named Dane Ortland. We received four cases of these. I don't know the number of that. It's probably maybe like 200 of these books last year. And I've just been waiting, like, when should we give these out to our community? And it's been sitting in the back for like the last seven months and just didn't have that perfect moment, you know? And so Nick shared, brought it up. I talked to somebody and they, maybe you even did, bought this book after what Nick shared last week. And we're like, why don't we just give them out now? And so on January 9th, here we are. And so in front of you is a book, grab it. You and your spouse, you can grab it. If you're solo, you can grab it. Grab one. If you only need one, but you came in a, a pack of two, give one away. Uh, this is a, just an excellent resource to dive more deeply into um, the heart of Jesus. And it's free. You don't have to like, there's no whatever. Just take it and enjoy it. Use it devotionally. Um, and as Nick was sharing last week as I was watching online, um, I was going to talk about prayer today. And I, 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 would, wanted, I kind of changed directions and decided I wanted to kind of go through the pathway of where Nick was in Matthew 11 to get to a conversation on prayer. So kind of the title of the sermon this morning is Come to Jesus and learn to pray. Come to Jesus and learn to pray. We're going to be in Matthew 11, 28 through 30. It reads, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Maybe you guys feel that, some of you, and just know Jesus is talking, staring you right into your eyeballs and talking to you directly. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me pray for us. Fathers, we navigate through this text, a common text, a text that we could easily move past or think we already have figured out. Lord, I ask that you, by your spirit, would open our eyes afresh to see your heart and your care. In Jesus' name, amen. It says, come to me. Come to me. That, that phrase, come, it's the prerequisite, prerequisite, um, the prerequisite to coming to Jesus is that you have to be messy. You have to be messy. He says, weary and heavy laden. He didn't say you got it together, you fixed your life, you dealt with your demons, you got all this stuff figured out, then you come to me. No, he says, come to me, those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can't come clean and come to Jesus. It's not an option. You have to come in your mess to Jesus. Come to me. So who are we coming to? We're coming to Jesus. So if I were to ask you, What's one word that you would use to describe Jesus? You don't have to respond, but if, think about it. What's one word that comes into your mind to describe Jesus? If you could describe him in one word, what would you describe him as? Some of us might say king, savior, he's all-powerful, he's the rescuer, he's the redeemer. All those things are true, but in 89 chapters, that's the, the, the fullness of the gospels, the four biographies of Jesus, in 89 chapters, only one place do we hear about the heart of Jesus? One place, and it's here. And he says about himself, he describes himself and his heart that he is gentle and he is lowly. See, he's the most understanding person in the universe. His natural posture towards us is not a posture of pointing his finger at us, but a posture of open arms. And you want to inspire somebody to follow Jesus? You want to free people from deep shame that they feel? You want to awaken hope to try to take steps of growth and, and spiritual formation? Show people, show yourself, Jesus, gentle and lowly. Yeah, he's omnipotent for sure. He's all-powerful for sure. But he is omnipotently gentle is who Jesus is. Don't let it pass you that the first words out of the mouth of Jesus regarding his heart are that he is gentle and lowly. And take it a step further, don't let it pass you that the first words out of God's mouth in the Old Testament referring to himself is that he says in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The first words out of his mouth. It's not it's here where we find rest. It's here that we actually learn how to follow Jesus, not on eggshells, making sure that we don't make mistakes, that we don't fall on our face because then he's going to lash out like our parents did or like that guardian did. He's not like that. He's not waiting for our next mistake to ignite him into rage. He's gentle and lowly. Again, Dane Ortland, who um, Nick mentions a few times last week. I'll mention a few times again this week. He says about Jesus that he's meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, not reactionary, easily exacerbated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. 
You know, we project our skewed instincts about how the world works upon Jesus. We put on to Jesus what we think he should act and respond to us as. But he's not like your boss, and he's not like your parent figure. He is gentle and lowly. Dane Ortland goes on to say, It is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over-celebrated, made too much of, exaggerated. It cannot be plumbed, but it is easily neglected, forgotten. We draw too little strength from it. It's this bountiful reminder that if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to take seriously what Jesus teaches us when it comes to obeying him and following him and finding life in him, we have to baseline begin with the fact that he's much more gentle and he's much more kind than we want to admit. And it's in that posture and place of knowing who he is and how he actually interacts with us that actually frees our hearts to freely follow him and surrender to him and to receive his love. If we recognize that he's distant if we recognize that he's aloof, if we recognize that he's angry towards us, then we are hesitant in how we approach him. But he's gentle and humble in heart. It's not just that Jesus was gentle and lowly, and now that he you know, was resurrected and ascended into heaven, he's now not that. He is still that here and now. I believe the last quote I have from my boy Dane, he says this, The risen Lord, alive and well in heaven, is not somehow less approachable and less compassionate than he was when he walked on earth. He's the same, gentle, kind towards sinners and those who are broken. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, learn from me for I am gentle and humble. So again, the prerequisite isn't to clean yourself up but instead to run to him with all of your mess and your junk and know that he's not surprised by any of it. Some of us need to stop trying so hard to prove yourself and simply feel his care and his embrace. We'll live on that hamster wheel of just trying to prove ourselves that we just had our life a little more in order. It would prove that we actually deserved love. It doesn't motivate, man. What, what motivates is when we know that we've already been fully loved. It's his kindness, not judgment, that leads us to repentance, Paul says. So because we don't see Jesus in this way, we don't run to him in hardship and in difficulty. Because we feel like he's harsh, because we feel like we're too far gone or too far, too much of a mess. We don't see the joy of coming to Jesus and finding life and peace from him in our mess. But when we come to him, the one who is gentle and lowly, We can learn and grow in our brokenness and find healing in him, not in our own strength, but in him. So this is where this matters. When we come to him, we learn from him, we begin to take on his yoke that is easy, his burden that is light. So he says, come to me. Come to me. I'm gentle and humble and hard. He says, learn from me. We can't miss the importance of this statement. Learn. The Christian faith isn't just a stamp to get to heaven. It's not just about having this faith, you kind of get the ticket to get to heaven, but it is a life of learning to follow Jesus that leads to abundant life and it leads us into an everlasting life as we apprentice and follow Jesus. See, learning from him is, is taking on his practices. It's learning how to take on his disciplines, learning how to take on his ways, learning how to take on his life and how that translates into what you do in your own life. But here's the deal. Our culture, and we might feel this more than we realize, our culture bucks against the notion of authority. 
I don't know if you have noticed this, but our culture bucks against authority. Someone telling me what to do is not an option. It's not something that we are willing to adhere to. You can't tell me what to do. What we hear instead is the heart, what, what, the heart wants what it wants, or follow your heart, or you do you, or speak your truth. And what's interesting, in 10th grade, I mentioned Hamlet a couple weeks ago. I'll mention it again. Uh, the char- there was a character in Hamlet. If you remember in 10th grade when you read Hamlet, there was a guy named Polonius, and he said this. He said, this above all, to thine own self be true. Translated, he said, be true to yourself. He said that years and years ago, Shakespeare, decades, centuries ago. It's the mantra of our culture. And here's the irony, is that Polonius was actually the fool in the story of Hamlet. And so when Shakespeare wrote this story centuries ago, his intention was to say that that statement was a foolish statement. But we've taken that statement to mean something different than what it was designed to mean when Shakespeare wrote it. See, it's the fool who encourages us to live by this slogan, to be true to yourself. Yet, we mouth this mantra like it's gospel to us. This doesn't lead us to freedom, it leads us to slavery. See, it is self, not the Jesus of the Bible, who is our new authority in Western culture. But as followers of Jesus, we submit our freedom to the Lordship of Jesus. And we say, you tell me how to live my life. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to follow Jesus, that we are progressively surrendering our lives, our identity, who we are to Jesus. And we're saying, I don't want my freedom. My freedom is slavery. I want to surrender that to you, Jesus, and you teach me. Let me learn from you what it looks like to truly live and truly be human. Come to me and learn from me. See, Jesus' followers are required to submit to Jesus, not just as Savior, but as Lord. And he becomes our truth. He becomes our true north. He becomes the compass that guides our lives. We come to Jesus and we learn from him. See, the way of Jesus, this would be on the the screen, the way of Jesus is a way of abundant life and transformation. This is not forged in a microwave, but rather through intentional diligence and submitting to the lifestyle of Jesus. The practices of Jesus are not a prison, but a gateway into a new way of life. It is countercultural to reorient our lives around the practices of Jesus in a largely undisciplined and comfort-seeking society. But that countercultural path is the way to experience the life and fruit of Jesus. The end goal of taking on the practices of Jesus is not to accomplish a task, but to be a person who abides in his love and becomes a person of love. This is our hope at Sojourn. We want to come to Jesus. We want to allow his gentleness and his lowliness to shape who we are and for us to learn how to follow him. Our faith runs on the practices of Jesus. So this morning, we want to come to Jesus and we want to learn to pray. So as we land here, I want to spend the remainder of our time uh, considering a practice that we need and I think would be relevant to reset on in this new year, and that would be prayer. Everybody say prayer. Good, just keeping you, keeping you active here. Quiet, centering prayer. Come to Jesus and learn 
to pray. There's two times in the Gospels, in the biographies of Jesus, where we find Jesus explicitly teach us how to pray. The first is in Matthew chapter 6, and it's in the Sermon on the Mount. And then he's talking to, we talk, went through the Sermon on the Mount, was it last year or the year before? I don't know, COVID makes everything a blur. But in the last few years, we went through the Sermon on the Mount. And, and in that, it was last year. Good. Just want to clarify that. So in that, um, he spends some time talking about what it looks like to pray, what it looks like to be a people who follow him and learn to pray. And in the midst of, of teaching around prayer, he gives us the Lord's Prayer that we're so maybe too familiar with. And in the Gospel of Luke, it's a different scenario, but the same reality takes place. In the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11, uh, his disciples come to him. They've seen Jesus do miracles. They've seen Jesus do signs and wonders. They've seen Jesus do incredible things in front of them. And yet the one question they ask Jesus is not, how do you do the miracles? How do you do the, the signs and wonders? How do you do, uh, uh, cause demons to respond in submission? How do you do those things? No, their one question to Jesus is, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And so he did. And he gave them the Lord's Prayer. The same example that he gave in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount. There was this posture of listening, a posture of learning, which is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When they approached Jesus, they said, teach us how to pray. I don't know how to pray, and I want to know how to pray because I've seen you connect with your Father, and I want that. Will you teach us how to pray? And there's something so profound in these words that Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Something so profound. It gives us tracks by the Spirit for him to speak and lead us as we learn to pray. I don't know who taught us how to pray or what we learned when it came to, uh, who gave us kind of the, the practices of how to pray, but oftentimes we don't pray because we kind of created a, our own rhythm for ourselves or read a book that wasn't related to what Jesus taught us, and now we've gotten bored or frustrated with prayer. And I would recommend us resetting on what it looks like to pray and actually allow Jesus to teach us how to pray. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, the Lord's Prayer may be the single set of words spoken more often than any other in the history of the world. Jesus Christ gave it to us as the key to unlock all riches of prayer. Yet it is an untapped resource, partially because it's so familiar. So Jesus gives us this Lord's Prayer, and in the Lord's Prayer, there are six movements that he gives us to guide us through in Luke 11 and in Matthew 6, he gives us ultimately the same tracks to guide us in prayer. I mean, I just want to remind us of this as we close. As we come to Jesus, as we experience his gentleness and his kindness and his lowliness, I want to remind us again, what did Jesus teach us how to pray? And allow that to guide us as we move forward in prayer in this upcoming year. So we're going to go through these six movements, and then we're going to pray together. And in the fourth movement, which is the daily bread portion, we're actually going to pray for a few things for our community. So that's what we're doing these next few minutes. So six movements. Again, I'm just going to read us the Lord's Prayer in case you forgot, or maybe you have no clue what it is. And either way, you're good. Welcome here. In Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5, I'll just read the section. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then like this. So if we're to learn from Jesus, he's teaching us how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us, but deliver us from evil. So he gives us these six movements. The first movement is adoption. Our Father in heaven is how he, he teaches us how to begin prayer. This is baseline. If your prayer life consists of you coming to God and asking God for things, you will get burned out by prayer. And maybe you already have. But if you want to learn to pray, why don't you learn from Jesus? And he begins approaching God in prayer, not with asking him for anything. The first half, the first three movements are not even related to you and your life. The first movement is adoption, remembering who you are and whose you are. You know what we forget more than anything else? Who we are and whose we are. And Jesus reminds us, if you want to learn how to pray as a disciple of Jesus, learn to begin by remembering that God is your father. He's your protector. He's your guide. He's your strength. He's your rock. He's your comfort. You know what revolutionizes prayer? Is knowing that God is your father. Because we come to him feeling like we're responsible for our lives, feeling like we're trying to spin all the plates that we're really not, but we think that we are. And then we come to him with anxiety and stress and pressure, feeling like we have to hold our worlds up. It's crushing. But we, when you begin by approaching God, but remember, you hold it all together. I don't. It frees our hearts to actually approach him, our Father in heaven. This is revolutionary. It confronts our false thoughts about God, and it confronts our false thoughts about ourselves. He would rather you miss going through your prayer list and remembering that he is our Father than getting through your prayer list and forgetting that God is your Father. He begins by saying, our Father in heaven. You're adopted, not because you earned it, but because he loved you by his grace. Our Father in heaven, adoption. The second movement is worship. Hallowed be your name. It's a declaration, a longing for his name to be great in our lives, in our world, in our community. C.S. Lewis says again, we've said this before, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And so it's a reminder, man, this is, my life is not about me. Hallowed be your name, not my name. This is not about me. It's a place of lifting your eyes up. I came across this quote recently that says, the difference between us and God is that God never thinks he is us. And so it's a reminder, <laughs> hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name, not mine. So we have adoption, we have worship. The third is lordship. Again, you haven't been asking God for your Aunt Samantha's cat. Like we're not there yet. We're getting there and he cares about it. I do believe he does. But we're not there yet. The third movement is lordship. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what confronts our pride? Asking God for his will to be done, not our will to be done. 
what confronts the core of our control and our yearning to, to kind of keep our life in order is a place of surrender and say, God, ultimately, I have no clue what I need in this life. So your will be done. I want to trust you with my job. I want to trust you with my kids. I want to trust you with my emotions. I want to trust you with the pain of my life and the sorrow of my life and the joys of my life. Your will be done. It's a forcing your grip open. Because what we do is if we come to God with our prayer list and we think we know the answers to our prayer list, what are we doing? We're becoming God. And Jesus is freeing our grips and saying, before you get to your list of daily bread, begin by saying God is Father in heaven and spend some time there. It's not about just reciting some words. It's it's movements that we allow the Spirit to speak to us through. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lordship, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's a reminder, we're part of a much greater narrative than our little puny kingdom that we're trying to live for, of trying to make a little more money before we die. Like that's, if that's it, that's sad. But we're part of something much greater and more beautiful of two conflicting kingdoms. We're going to learn a lot about this in a couple weeks in the book of Revelation. But the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of this world colliding together. And as a reminder, as we pray to Jesus, to pray to our Father in heaven, that we are reminding ourselves we're part of a much bigger story with a much greater kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we've gone three movements. You can spend 30 seconds on each of these. You can spend 20 minutes on each of these. Our Father in heaven, adoption. Hallowed be your name. Worship. Lordship, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we get a provision. God cares about your needs. He says, cast your cares in 1 Peter. Cast your cares upon me because I care for you. He's not ignoring the realities of your life. He just wants to get our heart in a posture where we actually can receive from him. And so this is the place when you already know that God is your father and he cares for you and he's not going to let you go, then you can actually come to him with your worries and say, God, I'm struggling, but I remember that you're my father. God, this anxiety that I'm feeling, but I remember that you're my father. God, this work-related thing that's stressing me out, but I remember that you're my father. It tethers us to reality in the midst of the storm of our life. And so we submit the, the good things, the bad things, the hardships, the trouble. We submit it all. He can carry it all. We can't. He can. This is the place where we can just vomit upon God. I'm sorry. That was maybe too much. But, but put it all on him, knowing he can deal with your mess. He doesn't care. But to cast those things upon him. It's good for our soul to do that. Again, we have adoption. We have, um, come on, Ernie, we have, go back to the notes, we have adoption, we have worship, we have lordship, we have provision, and the last two, we have reconciliation. It's this forgiveness that we give to others because we've received, received such forgiveness. This keeps us in a place of tenderness. And Jesus knew that our hearts naturally get bitter at people. We naturally get angry at people and we actually create division and we actually become cancers within our communities that divide and break down the body. And Jesus knew that. He said, in your rhythm of praying, put before me frustrations you have with people. It gets real. You know it. People are frustrating. But we can surrender these things and we can say, Jesus, would you help me to forgive? Or I need to give and extend forgiveness. This is a place of reconciliation that we give to God and allow that to play out in action. Or maybe owning stuff or maybe asking to apologize or seeking reconciliation. And the last is protection. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. And don't forget that there's a dragon. 
and wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He's after you, and he wants to destroy your life, and he wants to get you off a path or just remind you that your world is all you need to focus on. He wins if he does that. Man, remember, God, you are my father. You protect me. Would you keep me from temptation? Keep my flesh from going down a path that I would regret. Allow my conviction to be quick in my life. Prayers like the words in my mouth and the meditations in my heart be pleasing to you. God, if there's areas in my heart that aren't pleasing to you, convict me quickly. Let my heart have a posture of humility. Again, we have adoption, we have worship, we have lordship, we have provision, reconciliation, and protection. So Jesus teaches us to learn from him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And he says, learn from me. Father, this morning we give you thanks. Lord, I pray you'd guide us as we move into this year. I pray you'd stir our hearts. I pray you'd move in our kids, our students. You'd move in our lives and spiritual formation in our local context. God, we ask for salvation. We ask you to do a deep work in the lives and friends and neighbors in our communities. For Charlene and Brumby and Atlanta Angels and First Care, Lord, I pray you'd show up. For our global partners, God, would you move deeply powerfully in India and Thailand and Cuba and in Marietta. Let your kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven, God. We bless you and we love you in Jesus' name.